0: Um, I wanna ask you, so you mentioned immunotherapy. So I think one of the other um, broad sort of controversial topics in, in feline dermatology is kind of like allergy testing period, right? Can yeah. we do serum testing? Do we do skin testing? So um, yeah,
1: where's your, what's your take on that? Throw me to the wolves on that one. Yeah, um, that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the PER Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and
3: social media geek.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Little. I said it really it fast, but you couldn't hear Dr.
3: Get me Yola up. Kirpenstein, Well, Dr. Susan is just keep on talking. Hello, and this is the Per Podcast. So this beginning is still not what it's supposed to be, Dr. Susan. We're going
0: to have to get it right by the 100th episode, which is coming up very soon.
3: It is very close. It's very we're close. We're very close. We're in the high 90s. Yeah, we're in the high 90s. And, yeah. and to celebrate that, we have our special guest from last week coming back. And I'm really excited because we're going to talk about the top five cat derm diseases and what you can do about it, and lots of other stuff. Uh, We already have uh, talked about diagnostics and all those other things. So Ashley, it's great to have you back.
1: Thank you for having me back. I'm glad that cat derm got two episodes. I was a little nervous after I found out that Dr. Little did not like it, but here we are. (laughs) Well,
0: that's why I need people like you. You see, so
1: right, always learning. It's what we yeah. all all have to do. It's yeah,
3: continuous learning, and that's exactly right. And you know, I look at Dr. Susan to give me all the cat information, but I <laughs> do know not to ask her any derm questions. So <laughs> or neuro or neuro. You know, and it's funny because we give a lot of lectures together, and so sometimes we have to come up with cases. So we do these these case things interactive with uh, with the audience except in Japan and some countries in Asia because nobody responded to any of the questions that we had but in normally and so then i say oh let's put a derm uh, derm thing in there and she's like i don't want to talk about it
0: i got i got nothing <laughs> Yeah, so we never have Derm and we never have Nero and that's why. <laughs> yes. so,
3: but uh, no, Ashley, it's great to have you have you back. And uh, so what are the most common things that general practitioners see? And what are the most common things that you see in your mm. because you have a tertiary practice? So probably what you see is different than in general practice.
1: Yeah. We talked about it a little bit last week. Um, but in general, if we talk about the top things dermatologically that veterinarians are going to see, I mean, there is going to be a lot of overlap in the three things that instantly come to mind are the three types of allergies that we see in cats. So flea bite hypersensitivity, you know, some sort of adverse food reaction, and then atopic dermatitis though. Cats like They always like to try to change the name in cats for a while they were like trying not to call it like atopic dermatitis in cats I, I just like can't even even as a dermatologist sometimes I can't keep up like what maybe we are not calling it but in my mind I'm calling it the same thing um yeah atopy atopic dermatitis like yes there's slight differences but in general environmental allergies um, and then kind of the other ones, I'd say a little bit of, uh, and then pyoderma and otitis, I'm kind of lumping in There's secondary issues that we see a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I look more at the primary diseases, I'd say maybe that's a little bit where we're slightly different. So otodectes um, and dermatophyte, I still would probably put dermatophyte pretty high up there for us, but I do think depending on the general practitioner, they might see more because they just identify it really quickly. I'd say the one thing that we might be slightly different on as a I'd say decently common thing we see cats for would be feline pemphigus. Mm. Um, that is something that I, I wouldn't say I see like daily or even weekly, but I do see, they seem to come in waves to our office. Um, and that's specifically a lot of crusty, like pinna, the pinna or, um, the claw fold. So that's mm. kind of for me, I think that might be where we're a bit different as a dermatology specialty practice versus general practice, is we probably see more pimfugas.
3: And I yeah. am so disappointed that you didn't mention my favorite disease.
1: What? Ehlers-Danlos.
3: Yeah, that too. That too. But, but, I, but that's that's terrible disease. I, I, I guess like skin tumors.
1: Oh. oh, well, to be honest again, so this is interesting, right? Like, I don't see that many in cats because for the most part, what are you going to do with the, like, people always think, oh, you must do like tons of, of skin masses. Most of the skin masses, I I get some, but most of the ones I aspirate or diagnose, they're more have been my chronic patient for something else. And mm-hmm. then the owner has noticed a mass they want me to evaluate. For the most part, like general practitioners are going to aspirate or do mass removals on their own. So that's going to be my cop out for that. So yeah. I think we're the-
3: going to have the whole podcast talking about taking oh. out cool skin tumors, using oh. the water
1: how to use the blades
0: i see yola was going to turn this into a reconstructive surgery time so we're going to have to just stay firm here ashley moving forward so
1: yeah that's right i don't i don't want to speak on something i mean i do do mass removals but i would definitely say especially in cats it is not high up there for us
0: well i think it's part part of the reason of course as you said the general practitioners take care of them but and again i don't know compared to the other species per se but most of the skin masses in cats are benign anyway. Like they don't have a high rate of malignant skin mass. There, there are malignancies, but you know, the majority of what practitioners see are benign and you're just gonna whack it off and yeah. well, maybe not do
1: whack what? it off. <laughs> carefully, carefully laser oh. or blade it off.
0: Carefully excise.
1: There you go. With
3: adequate margins, I hope. With adequate margins.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, This this, this
3: podcast is going nowhere, obviously. So Let's talk a little bit about flea bite allergies.
0: Oh, boy.
1: (laughs) Sure. Um, And can I preface with saying every single one of these things, like I know we have a time limit. I could do a lecture on each of these. So oh. like, we're going to be very superficial here. Obviously I'd say the main <laughs> things, cause I just like, don't want someone to think that I'm going to tell you everything about flea bite hypersensitivity in like two minutes. <laughs> um, the main thing I would think about is, um, I guess if I had to pick the big things that practitioners should realize about flea bite hypersensitivity, no, you do not have to see fleas, right? Yes. Indoor only cats absolutely can have flea bite hypersensitivity. Um, uh, and then prevention, I would say not all preventions are created equal. Mm. So you have to be really careful about just assuming because the cat's on some sort of, um, flea prevention, like if it's over the counter or even some of the products that have been around for a while, like, um, Fipronel, we are seeing some resistance, um, in the, and some of those products may still work fine in a cat that's not sensitive, right? Like it kind of comes down to the load and how, of a problem it is for them, but when you get a cat who truly has a flea bite hypersensitivity, we have to use products that have really high speed of kill. So we start thinking of things like Isoxazoline, so in cats, that's going to be like Brevecto and Revolution Plus are kind of the ones that I tend to go to, Um, you know, like Comfortis if they need an oral option can still be a really good, um, prevention. So those would be the main things. The other thing I would mention, I guess, is we want to have all the animals in the household on good flea prevention. So if you are suspicious that a cat's flea allergic and they have two other cats, it's really beneficial to have all of the cats on good, high quality flea control. And cats can do, you know, they can overgroom their belly, they can chew their rump, um, and they can just generally be an itchy mess with flea allergies. So you absolutely want to rule that out because it's very common in cats.
3: And you and only boy- need one flea to be allergic yeah. to them. Huh? So you don't need a lot of fleas to be allergic. I think that was your, your point also in saying you don't have to see the fleas. Yeah. There's only one that is jumping around in your house and only has to bite now and then, and you're still allergic to them.
1: I almost never honestly see them um, yeah. because cats are groomers, That you know they're fast. And you're right, you don't have to have much. There's also always more than you realize. <laughs> like if you're, fi- <laughs> unfortunately, if you're finding fleas, There is definitely more. And the other quick tip I'll say is sometimes it actually takes a a few months of consistent application. If you think about the flea life cycle and where these products work, sometimes if they're like say 70% better on their first recheck before I'll jump into any other form of allergy, we might give them another month or two of being consistent before we decide to move on. I like what you.
3: Oh, sorry, Susan, one more time. And then, yeah. then I let you go. Which episode of the DermFed dives into flea ah. allergies? Oh,
1: so hold on. You it up? Checking Super it out. Awesome. Yeah.
3: That's excellent.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a trick question. You know, when you ask a podcaster, well, which episode was?
1: Yeah. I'm at 46 episodes. So every time I have to like, look it up. <laughs> I, I only know. So, um, I have a whole cat episode. I'm almost positive. That's episode 23. Cause I looked it up before we got on. Yeah. So episode 23 is me and another dermatologist talking all about cats. Perfect. And so, and then episode 17, um, oh. is where we dive into just fleas flea allergy dermatitis in general. Again, it's me and another dermatologist. Cool.
0: Um, I just want to circle back to one thing you said, and and that's even if the if the owner says the cat's on flea preventive, it still could have fleas, and that really resonates with me. And it makes me think of a study um, that came out of a feline practice. It was published a few years ago, and it was um, uh, uh, on uh, anaplasma. Um, and the the point of the study um, was that many of the cats that it's a tick borne disease. So many of the cats that were, had tick-borne diseases like anaplasma were supposedly on flea preventive, flea and tick, sorry, flea and tick preventive, right? So I think what that speaks to is just because you've sold it doesn't mean it actually got applied to or in the cat and and maybe not uh, uh, whenever, every time it should have, right? So if it's a monthly thing, maybe not every month. So I think we kind of overestimate, right? We assume if it went out the door, <laughs> then it probably was used as intended. So that's a really good point.
1: Yep. Yeah. And, and I've and i had that happen several times. So you always have to ask, when was the last application? You know, we want them to be honest. And I would also add, don't give up. Like if you really think a cat's flea allergic and they kind of fought you on starting it and they're coming back, like I've had several where after a couple of months are finally like, okay, like we'll try it.
0: But it's such an easy thing, especially these days. It's a pretty easy thing to do a trial and see if that's a part of the problem. The other thing that frustrates me about feline dermatology is there's often not one problem. There's often multiple problems. So Yep.
1: Yeah. And that's where like talking about allergies and if we move into the other allergies, I think any allergic cat should be on good fleet control because mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. I have, I'd say like, I see tons of cats who are fleet and environmentally allergic or they're feet, you know, fleet and food allergic. So really they should all be on it. let
0: just put them all
1: on fleet control. All of them. Um, yeah. <laughs>
3: they should be. They should be.
1: So let's talk about
3: atopic dermatitis a little bit. Uh, and I agree with Dr. Susan that cat comes to the vet clinic with a whole bag of diseases most of the time. So not only think there's only one problem, but most of there are multiple problems, especially with the older cat. But uh, atopic dermatitis in cats.
1: Mm. Yeah, again, a whole like two hours of lecture I could give to you. Um, but to make it succinct uh, as much as I can. I'm in general, not a succinct person, um, but you know, it's a diagnosis of rule out. So Mm -hmm. you really do still want to have them on good flea control. Um, I'd say diet trial depends on the history for me. I am particularly not one that thinks every single cat in the world has to have a diet trial for itchy. If they have, you know, super seasonal component, uh, if they have feline asthma. So remember that we can see things like feline asthma with atopic dermatitis, uh, I'll give owners the option, we could always change the food, but if we have a, a huge seasonal component, they've you know been on really good fleet control through that time and say they're asthmatic, or even if they're not, like we may just start out treating the atopic dermatitis, but never wrong to do a, a food trial. And sometimes we'll say, okay, maybe we'll come back to that if we can't get full control. But then you come down to, um, I'm assuming we've all done our cytologies and we've ruled out infections. So we can kind of skip over talking about that but then it comes down to symptomatic care. And unfortunately for cats, we only have two options traditionally, and that is steroids. I particularly try not to use a lot of injectable steroids. Um, For me, it's because I, one, the risk of diabetes obviously is a big concern, Um, but remember the the cats I'm seeing, they're not just having like one flare a year, like one depot a year. It's like, they've already either failed it, they're having to have it every few months, and we are very concerned about them having side effects. So I use some oral steroids where I can taper it down, get them on a lower dose. Um, I do like cyclosporine or atopica in these cats, but I always have a conversation with the owners that, you know, it's not a great tasting liquid. It can be really better. Cats can really hate it. I have actually had some cats do better on the capsule form. So we always have a discussion when we start it of, you know, where should we start? If that's not successful, we could go to the other form of it. Let's you got to take the time to talk to your owners about giving the medication, you know, do we need to try to sneak it in some food? I've, you can't really compound cyclosporin super reliably. So then sometimes I've had them like suck up the topic and kind of maybe suck up a little like tuna juice or apple juice or something to try to dumb down the taste, but it's, it can be super difficult. And that's why personally, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for immunotherapy in cats, because if you can eventually get them to something where We can give them an injection every two weeks and cats are actually super tolerant of injectables and we can minimize having to do these things that they hate. It ruins our relationship with our cats when we have to give them a nasty tasting liquid every day. We don't have really many side effects. Truly immunotherapy, if you can uh, refer for it um, or get them started on immunotherapy, if it can even lessen the amount of drugs we need to use, it's truly a win for everybody and I probably should preface because I know this is like the big elephant in the room uh, about apical usage in cats. Uh, I can never, ever, ever get away from a cat lecture without talking about it. Um, So first of all, it's off-label. We have to know that. Um, The studies have really kind of shown it breaks down really fast in cats. So the problem with using apical in cats is that you often have to give it twice a day, at least in most of our experiences and kind of what the half-life shows us. And I, I will say, I feel like it's hit or miss. So I've had some cats where we have reasons I can't use steroids. It absolutely will not take the Topica and it's done. It's provided relief. It's been helpful. I've had some cats where it's just like nothing, like it just really doesn't help them. So you tend to have to use higher amounts, like even up to a mig per keg twice a day. Um, And it is obviously off label. So we have to be careful with that.
3: And do they yeah. know if the receptor is the same in cats versus dogs? They-
1: you know, they're doing so much. I don't know that we even know, or at least they're doing a lot of research about interleukin-31 levels in cats. Um, and we know they make it, but there's still a lot we're learning about the receptors. And, you know, everyone wants an injectable, like how wonderful would that be? If we mm-hmm. had an injectable mono- monoclonal antibody for itch in cats, like that would be everybody's wish. Um, I know there's definitely research about levels of IL-31 in cats, um, but the specifics, I just don't think we're there yet.
0: Um, I want to ask you, so you mentioned immunotherapy. So I think one of the other um, broad sort of controversial topics in in feline dermatology is kind of like allergy testing period, right? Can we do serum testing? Do we do skin testing? So um, yeah, where's your, what's your take on that?
1: throw me to the wolves on that one. Um, (laughs) yeah, no, it's okay. You know, how do we learn if we don't discuss and have different opinions? Um, so it's a huge topic of debate in our field. And honestly, people, there's still actually a huge debate about some with some dermatologists about that for dogs. Like people always think we learn in school, school, skin testing, school standard. I know dermatologists who prefer serum testing. (laughs) Now, there's a lot of serum tests out there. So they're not all created equal either. There's about like, you know, two or three that people tend to use and have more research backing them up. Um, what we do is I like to tell owners, I like to be an information collector. Like if we're going to talk about putting a cat on a long-term therapy, you know, we hope for 65 to 70% um, results some improvement, whether that's no other drugs or, uh, maybe some drugs, but we can tell that it's been helpful and it's going to be a lifelong therapy guy. Mm-hmm. will really want to maximize the chance that we're going to get a response. So I actually try to do both. Mm-hmm. I just try to see if we can pick up really strong positives on the skin test and on the serum test. Now I will say traditionally cats do not pop up their skin test as well as dogs do, um, but what we actually do in our clinics and is gaining more and more popularity, uh, throughout dermatology is we can do IV fluorescein. Oh. So there's a, yeah. So there's a protocol where you can, um, you know, sedate the cat still you put in an IV catheter, you do the skin test and there's kind of different protocols of when you give the IV fluorescein. But when I do a cat skin test now, I actually, um, do the skin test. And then right before I read it, we inject them with IV fluorescein and I get to read it with like a black light, like the Wood's yeah. lamp. It's really cool. I kind of feel like I'm in a rave when I do it. Um, it's just like, yeah. It's magical. Yeah, it's really, really cool. And honestly, cats drop their skin test very quickly. Um, so you got to do it fast. But I've gotten some beautiful um, skin tests that way. So wow. What
3: do you do with a client that comes in with a whole list of all sorts of allergies that the cat has?
1: Like from the blood test? Mm-hmm. So it depends on the blood test. And again, that's where I get lots of different opinions. Um, you know, personally at our clinic, we use barrel, um, you know, IDEX has one and, um, Heska Greer has gone into IDEX. So I guess now it's just IDEX. Um, those are probably the three main ones that are used. I will say whenever I get a food allergy test, I have to delicately tell them that I don't put much faith into that. And that's really hard. And I really try to emphasize to practitioners to not run them. Because even if you tell owners, ah, we don't know if, if we can trust it, it's a result on a piece of paper. And so I've had many conversations where I say, well, unfortunately food allergy testing is not really validated at this point. We have to do a diet trial. They're like, okay, so, you know, sounds good. And then as soon as they start talking about the foods we could use, they're like, oh, but they're allergic to that. I'm like, oh, but we actually don't know. Like they're probably not, if they've never had kangaroo in their life and all of a sudden, you think they're allergic? Yeah, exactly. So don't do food allergy testing, but for environmental allergy testing. So I actually will only allergy test a cat. If we're going to do immunotherapy. Yeah. So just, it, yeah. It's not realistic to avoid all the things that are going to be positive. Um, it's just not going to happen. So if they come to me with the test and I feel like it's a really, it's a lab I trust and it's a valid test then we'll formulate immunotherapy off of it. So I do have cats where we just do serum testing. and um, maybe, Maybe they have IBD and they can't be off steroids or really bad feline asthma and they can't be off steroids because we do have to have them withdrawn for steroids for skin testing. Um, so I feel comfortable depending on the lab to utilize that. Got and it. Once
3: again, we will refer to the derm that you probably have an episode uh, on this too. Before we switch over to the pyoderma in the Ooh. the one yeah pyoderma talk.
1: Yeah. Give your two hour feline pyderma talk in two minutes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, so it's interesting cats, they don't break out with pyoderma. I will say as much as dogs, like there's actually been studies looking at the adherent. So this is where, you know, you're talking to a dermatologist. There've been studies that are really cool that show that staff doesn't adhere to keratinocytes as readily in cats compared to dogs. So That means like they're not as sticky, Um, but we absolutely still see it. But in cats, I'd say what's more common to see like with a pyoderma is some form of eosinophilic granuloma. So you can get strict pyoderma in cats for sure. Like, you know, you should always still do your cytology, but more often I'd say we see some sort of eosinophilic granuloma. So whether, you know, that's a plaque on their belly or a granuloma on their chin or their lips, Um, those tend to be infected. And there's studies that actually show if you just treat the infection, a significant portion of the granuloma will resolve because it's like this hypersensitive allergic reaction their body's having, Mm -hmm. which is why you cytology those, you'll see tons of eosinophils and often a lot of infection. So I'd say that's more common presentation to see as like an actual bacterial infection in a cat but you still have to get to the underlying cause and do your your allergic workup to find out why it's happening.
0: So you know that thing when cats get that fat bit on their lower lip, do you see cats with that? Does it, so number one, does it have a name? Cause I just call it like the fat lip thing. (laughs) And number two, what is it?
1: Yeah. Usually, um, it's going to be some form of an eosinophilic granuloma. Like if it's just like the chin area, but if you're talking about kind of the swelling or little ulcerations they can get around their mouth and that would be an indolent ulcer or, or rodent ulcer. Um, and they're all just different manifestations right. of EGC. Yeah.
0: I mean more like it's usually the point of the, of the, the, the chin lip area. Like- like right on
1: midline and like chin acne or an actual swelling no, like
0: on like a swelling around the lip so it would look like somebody yeah. punched you on the lip
1: and you get yeah these, yeah it's likely so I have pictures of some and I have biopsied some and it's yeah. likely just a form of like an eosinophilic granuloma we think of them affecting like the hard palate and the soft palate but you can get kind of that swollen appearance especially if you catch them early yeah
0: certainly seen like um lots of the eosinophilic granulomas that cause like the typical rodent ulcer and all of yeah. that. You know, the, these little fat lip things don't ulcerate and they just kind of sit there and then the owner brings them in because they're like, look, what happened to my cat's lip? And like, I don't know.
3: <laughs> and it's great that our audience cannot see it because Dr. Susan is
0: pointing yes, at Yes, I'm pointing at you. Very helpful on really radio. Helpful, on uh, podcast. Uh,
3: very, very helpful, Dr. Susan, thank you. But uh, um, I have another question for you. Uh, and now we're diving a little bit more into the deep of uh, tertiary practice dermatology. So what are the coolest cases that you see in cats in your practice?
1: Oh, oh I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a Pymphagus lover. Like I kind of mentioned it before, but I really think that is something that gets, cats are actually really unique in how they show us Pymphagus like usually there's three main areas they'll show us it. Either they'll have really crusty pinna, they'll have really crusty cloth folds, which I'd say is probably the predominant way I see it. Uh, And then, or else they'll get really crust around their nipples. And so it's, it's pretty unique. You can still, I've had cats still like, you know, their nasal planum or their face kind of wiped out with Pymphagus, but cats are really unique. I mean, I'd say the cloth folds are one of the most overlooked things I, I see because it's quite different than dogs. Like dogs, we do see, you know, nasal planum, dorsal muzzle, trunk, paw pads, but cats really like, if you show me a crusty claw fold in a cat, like mm. I would put pimphigus above allergies and infection, but that's, that's really, nice can- too. Yeah. yeah. And it's really counterintuitive, right? Cause like you said, dogs we we know way more about and we learn more about and we see more about them. so that's one thing where I don't think you can really extrapolate how you practice your derm if you see a dog with a swollen claw fold that's crusty you know I want you to get a toothpick see cytology and find the yeast and bacteria that's probably there and that does happen in cats but I would actually say more often than not you'll find maybe some infection, but probably more likely a bunch of neutrophils and then maybe some acantholytic cells. Um, So I just love it. Like I, a case comes to mind like a few months ago where, you know, it's, we're all really busy in the clinic right now and we're all like booked out. And I work one day a week at a multi-specialty hospital, which I love because then I still get to have that relationship with other specialists and can refer me cases. Cause the rest of the time I work in a derm only practice in an ER vet came by and they're like I just can you look at this cat it's like the it's like the worst thing of I'm like the worst thing you've ever seen like you guys see like hit by cars and I'm like yeah sure of course and I like walk by and I'm like that cat that's just a pimpigus cat like it's just really cool but that's my specialty right so they, I don't expect an ER vet to know crusty claw folds and ears and a cat would be pimpigus but that's where I find pemphigus so cool in cats because it really is something that gosh, for the most part, you can kind of look at and we still biopsy them obviously, but it's yeah. really cool to feel like, oh yeah, it's, it's more than likely this, you know, it's just, a, it's really cool. And they respond really well for the most part to therapy.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I have to, I have to say that I, <clears throat> if I had a derm disease, I like in cats, it's because easy to diagnose, usually do well in treatment. So we found it. We
1: found her love for derm. I know.
3: I know. We're back to the circle <laughs> of We're back. We saved and, and, you know, <laughs> we solved the puzzle. How <sighs> Dr. Susan can love derm. She needs yeah. to get some confocus cases. She needs to be able to inject the steroids because that seems to be the number <laughs> yeah, one. That- and, you know, I think, uh, Ashley, when Dr. Susan refers cases to your you probably don't have to ask the question if they have gotten steroids. So you have to ask the question when. <laughs>
0: <them>. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not that bad close, but not, not quite that bad. Um, I don't I don't know again what the situation is like in the other species, but cats can also have some really weird skin diseases too, every now and then, right? So like a weird zebra will crop up and they'll there'll be like one other case report in the literature and nobody will know what to do with them. And you you can tell me what you think about this, but I think that that some of these could be lumped together under umbrellas, but we just don't have enough case reports and enough data on a lot of these sort of less common presentations that they all kind of look like they're separate diseases. And I know that's a very vague description, but it just speaks to how 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 much less info we have in feline derm, right? Like some yeah. you, know, you get biopsies back that say, "Oh, it's the this type of mural folliculitis." Well, those, I was.
1: Don't- I'm just going to say that. Right? I, yeah. I was just going to say that's like what? mural folliculitis, right? Yeah, yeah. And that probably
0: belongs somewhere else, but where does it belong? Right. Yeah.
1: So- yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's in even, even diseases that we do know some about, right? Like exfoliative dermatitis or perineoplastic yeah. alopecia. Like we do have studies on those, but it's still like not that many cats. And, you know, and some of them do not read the book. Um, totally. as far as, you know, not every exfoliative dermatitis cat, like is going to have a thymoma. Like we think I about, that. Um, but you're right. Like there's, you'll find like one random case report somewhere and and there's really just not that much information.
0: Good, I'm glad I'm not the only one who gets the mural folliculitis and goes,
1: Oh, uh, they're tough. So how do you so treat those? Oh, man. I mean, there is one my colleague actually had recently that they, they can be tough and they can be like um, uh, a lot of immunosuppressives and then searching deeper, you know, probably sending them honestly to like an internist to make sure there's nothing like triggering that. Like even some of my pimphigus cases, not so much in cats, but I've had some dog ones where you know, we'll diagnose it, there'll be really tough pimpheus cases. And then all of a sudden we'll find a hepatic mass or something. So mm-hmm. sometimes I think it's really easy to jump on an autoimmune disease, but sometimes like the skin really is manifesting some weird thing going on deeper. Um, so yeah, that one can be tough. But a lot of a lot of trying different um, immunosuppressives like high dose steroids, things like that.
0: The other thing that I always hate to see are those head and neck ulcers. Um, and, and again, does it have a new name? Cause for a long time, it was just like head and neck skin disease. So, you know what I mean, right? Those big, um, uh, ulcers that often don't heal well, or they'll almost heal and they'll contract down. Then they'll start up again, mm-hmm. self-trauma involved. Does it have a proper name yet?
1: Yeah, it's kind of escaping me. It's like ulcerative dermatitis. Um, and it, the thing, yeah, the thing too, I know it's always like the zebra ones where I'm like, I knew for boards and now mm. I haven't seen one, but it's the oh. thing to realize about those. There are certainly ones and honestly, like topical things like, uh, tacrolimus and using cyclosporin systemically can be really helpful for those. But, um, for the listeners, you need to rule out parasites and food allergy in those cases. Cause sometimes mm. it's really just head and neck paritis is actually something that's I will absolutely make them do a diet trial for in ectoparasite control because both of those things um, tend to cause paritis to target those areas more readily.
0: Mm. Yeah, but we still see some that I, at least I can't. Oh, find yeah. And my, my gosh, if there's one skin disease, I would never wish on a cat. It's that one yeah it's terrible so yeah
3: so it's interesting to hear that uh, although we're at time that dr susan oh. cannot stop talking about justice, <laughs> so we
0: well, have you know i've been thinking that, i've been thinking no i've been thinking about the things that i have asking her about the things that i struggle with and and i'm you know somewhat relieved to find out that others struggle with them too so <laughs> there
1: you go You know, honestly, I love that you brought that up because I get asked that I think sometimes people think you specialize and that just means every case you see is easy and it's farther from it's I have simple allergy cases I struggle with like it is farther from the truth there's just some cases and diseases that really suck and are really Mm. really difficult even in the hands of a specialist and we Fair. didn't
3: even talk about tumors so <laughs> <laughs> we had a plan to not yes, get to that exactly, exactly. Are you. it just means that you have to come back because i want to talk about other skin problems so we still have a lot of skin problems to go so oh yeah this is and i can look up
1: the more appropriate name for season <laughs> yes, thank you
3: yes. Dr. Susan tends to do that. When we lecture together, she pops up a slide. She said, What is this? Like, I don't know what this is. And uh, so don't, you're not the only one. Here, <laughs> but, uh, but no, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Ashley. Uh, always great uh, to talk, Derm. Uh, although this is only the second time that we did but uh, (laughs) and i want to stimulate everybody that's listening to listen to the derm vet podcast we'll put a link in our show notes Uh, wonderful podcast if you like derm and probably all the things that we talked about hopefully are already episodes in the podcast
1: yep Especially episode 23, apparently, the feline one. The 23 episode,
3: 23 episode. So I wanted to ask questions about feline sarcoids. We didn't get there yet. Oh, oh another I, one.
1: I am so glad we ran out of time.
3: <laughs> yeah, although there's new literature. So I was really excited about it. New, two new articles about sarcoids in cats. So, oh. uh, and we haven't had any news there. So we need to get you back to uh, talk about sarcoids. Uh, I guess. And, and the interesting thing of the literature is just I, I, we're not going to dive into this topic that one article said it was really easy to treat them if you're early and I don't know if I totally agree with that but you know we'll 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 leave that for a next episode
1: we'll do the next episode of like sarcoids bowen's disease yeah, all the things go.
0: exactly I, I like that idea we'll we'll do like a little present smorgasbord right of all the really tough things you're not going to see every day but in your career you'll get one so
1: yeah, and yeah. then I will have to study for that episode.
0: Okay, we'll give you plenty of time so you can study for the episode. Yeah,
1: That's yeah, awesome. we'll all have to
0: study, and then we'll be ready.
1: Yeah. So thank you so much. Yes, uh, thank you. Love great.
0: your passion. I love that. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you guys for having me.
0: Yola, can you do the closing this time?
1: Oh yes,
3: we need to close still. Ooh, I was all I, I was all almost saying. Okay, goodbye and. Yola's see you like later, we're but, out. You know, uh, this is the Per Podcast, and we just had a wonderful episode with Dr. Ashley Bourgeois. Uh, and if you like the podcast, you can give us a five-star review. Or, uh, and if you haven't listened to the other podcast, please go to perpodcast.net. Uh, we are also on social media with the hashtag Per Podcast, and uh, you know you can find this podcast on any platform. Uh, Ashley, your podcast is available everywhere too?
1: Yes, that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never know these days. <laughs> yeah, because I, I hate to say that and there's some random app yeah. I don't know about, but the main ones. Sure. The main ones, Yay.
3: find the Fed. It's called DermFat and it's a great podcast. So Ashley, thank you so much.
0: Yes, thank you.
2: Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options.